thirsty? Well, that's what we're talking about today, thirsty. Good morning, family. We're, um, you know, there's some interesting things about being thirsty. You can become thirsty because of a suggestion, right? The suggestion could be a, a nice glass with, uh, you know, it's kind of beaten up and it's cold and, and whatever your favorite be- beverage is and you're, you're taking that and you're drinking and, or somebody else is and you're going, I want one of those. You can kind of catch it in that way or desire it because of others. But sometimes thirsty is not recognized. I mean, sometimes we're unaware of being thirsty. You can be thirsty and be unaware of it. And you say, well, I think I'm always aware of being. Well, sometimes you're not. In fact, there's an interesting um, thing about uh, thirst. There's a, there's a part of our brain that will actually tell you you're not thirsty when you are. When water isn't available, in fact, the scientific term for it is neural adaptation. And where you'll make, your brain will actually make um, a, you know, kind of trick you into not feeling thirsty because it wants, you need the energy for whatever it is. Now, there'll come a point, of course, where that your brain won't trick you anymore. It's going to drive, it would drive you uh, for thirst. But I've also, you know, I've had experience, in fact, one time, a long time ago, um, I was, um, I, I had caught, got the flu, and um, I started, you know, getting worse and worse, and I, I was at a place where I remember I was laying on the floor, I was just in, it was just a lot of pain, I was kind of groaning, and Carol says, okay, we're going to the, we're going to the doctor, we're going to get you to emergency, and I, I no, I, I just the flu, I'll just get through it, and she finally just said, no, we got to go, and, and uh, so I, I went along, and and uh, when I got there, I found out I was dehydrated. And in fact, the doctor said it, I, was, it was an, I was in a dangerous place because I'd been so dehydrated. But I didn't know. I didn't know the problem was that my body was dehydrated. Now, I, I tell you that because we're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that talks about water or talks about thirst that really does relate to um, not just fi- the physical thirst, how it relates to spiritual thirst. And sometimes in our life, people don't, we, we, I think we suppress oftentimes our thirst. In fact, the thing about being thirsty is everyone has been thirsty, right? Is there anybody here that's never been thirsty? Of course you've been thirsty. Everybody is thirsty. Spiritually, that's true too. Everyone has a thirst, a spiritual thirst for God, but the problem is sometimes because of whatever it is we're trying to satisfy besides that particular thirst, we suppress that thirst. And, and in fact, there are people who spend their whole life suppressing their thirst for God. And they come to the point where they don't think they need God or don't think that they, you know, they really want God in their life because they've suppressed something, they, they suppressed it so they could, in fact, try to fulfill that thirst with something else. And people do that all the time. 
Well, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we get to open your word this morning. I pray that you would, um, Lord, help me as I communicate it. I pray, Father, fill me with your spirit and help each person here, um, Lord, to receive what you want to say to them. I pray that our ears, spiritual ears, will be attentive to what you want to speak to our hearts, I pray. Satisfy our thirst in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in two main portions of Scripture. Um, you can start, if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 4 and just put a marker there and then go over to John chapter 7 is where we're going to start off. And uh, <clears throat> in John chapter 7, it's verse 37 is where we're at. And the Scripture says, on the last day, that great day of the feast. Now I want to stop there because... This is going to tell us, uh, uh, Jesus is going to speak a very important message, uh, a, a short message to the people, to us. And, but um, but the, John is writing and, and giving us a kind of a setting for it. What is going on when Jesus says it? And it's important. It's important that we understand this. So he tells us that it's, uh, it's the last day and... It's the great day of the feast. Well, what feast is it? There, there are seven feasts in Israel, um, and this feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. And it is uh, the feast, it's the most celebrative of all the feasts in Israel. And uh, this, this feast is the last one, it's a, and, uh, and what, what they did was God had given them direction on this feast, and he had told them, that they are to um, gather in booths or tents, we would say. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths. But they would set up these kind of booths or tents, and they would stay in them because the feast is eight days. It's an eight-day feast, and they're going to be in the feast. They're going to sit in these, these booths, and it's a commemoration of God's provision for them when they were in the desert, when they were get, getting ready to go into the promised land, and how God provided for them, and they're going to celebrate and, and remember that God can take care of them. God will make sure that they have everything they need. Even the, in the worst of situations and circumstances, God had promised to provide, and he did, and they want to keep remembering that. So they, it, it was set up so that they would do that. And every year, in fact, you're gonna, you can go to Israel today in the Feast of Booths, and you'll see people setting up booths all over. Sometimes they attach them to their buildings. You can see them on, you know, like they, they, they'll be in a high rise, and they'll attach them to their buildings or balconies, and, and they will, will stay in those booths as they celebrate. Now, what would happen is each day um, that the people would gather together. Now, the first thing they did for the Feast of Booths was to get uh, these branches. They got them from the trees, and uh, there were three different trees that they could get their branches from that they were supposed to, and they would keep them. But then every day at a set time, they would come to the area of the temple, and they would come down to where, where the, um, the altar was, and they, they would gather around the altar and they would hold up these branches kind of like a canopy, this huge canopy over the altar and over the people as they would gather together. 
then the priest, the high priest would go down and gather in, in, in a bowl, this golden bowl, they would gather water and bring it and pour it on the altar. And they would, there would be silence, there would be prayer. They, they, would, they would pray both a, a, a thankfulness for God's provision and they would pray that it would rain and they would have more, that God would bring in a, great, a greater harvest for them. So <clears throat> that's what they did. And they did that for seven days. But notice it says it was the last day because something significant happened on the last day before Jesus gives this message. And so what happened was on the last day is as they gathered and the priest got the, the bowl and poured out the water uh, on the altar, the, the scripture would be repeated, therefore with joy shall we draw waters from the wells of salvation, and in that day we will say, praise the Lord. So it's an anticipation, and it's looking forward to the wells of salvation that would be brought out and the, the celebration or the praising of the Lord. And on the last day, they would sing what is called the Hillel. It's the, it's the portion of scripture in Psalms from Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. And it's very celebrative and thankful. And they would sing these songs. So this is a very hot, this is a great celebration time that they would all have together. But something happened also on the eighth day that didn't happen on the other days, and that was this, that before they poured the water on the altar, the people would march around the altar. So there's this kind of massive march around the altar, and they did it seven times. They did it to, in remembrance of, of another significant event that happened in the past. That was when the children of Israel marched around the walls of Jericho and the walls came down. And that moment was the end of their wandering in the wilderness and their beginning of entering into the promised land. You see? So this is a reminder and a commemoration that God brought them. He provided for them in the wilderness. The water was there. But then it also is a reminder that he brought them through the wilderness to go into the promised land. Now, on the eighth day, when the, when the priest then, after they march, pours out the water, there is silence. In fact, every time they would pour out the water, they were all required to be quiet as he poured out the water and there would be prayer, what have you. This time, when he pours out the water, Jesus, look what the scripture says, stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Right? And for he who believes in me, out of his belly or out of his, 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 his heart will, will flow rivers of living water. Let him come to me, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts. 
So you can see, in fact, the word that he cried out, actually the word is heralding. And it's, it's both a loud, vocal, passionate. There's emotion to that kind of uh, heralding, how that, that word is used. So there's this passionate cry of Jesus that says, if anyone, whether you know it or not, you are spiritually thirsty. And you can suppress your thirst by trying to fill it with other things. But the fact is, you're thirsty, and there's only one who can satisfy that kind of thirst. I, I thought um, how Jesus said, he didn't even say what you're thirsty for. The assumption is there. Everybody knows. This is a thirst that can't be satisfied by anything physical. This is a spiritual thirst. I was thinking of an illustration, and I was thinking of the story I heard from Stephen Meyer. Dr. Stephen Meyer is a brilliant uh, both author, scientist. He was a, um, he, uh, was a Rhodes Scholar um, and uh, from Oxford, brilliant man. And, uh, and Stephen Meyer, when he was 14 years old, he had this, um, he, he had this plaguing thought in his mind. He was smart enough at 14 to kind of get this. But he had this plaguing thought in his mind. What will it all matter 100 years from now? That was plaguing him. What will it, what will, what will it matter? I'll be in the ground. I'll be nothing but dust. He wasn't a believer. And everybody I know is going to be gone. Everything's going to be gone. That is a dilemma, by the way, that atheists never go down that road. They'll have other arguments, but they will never go down that road and deal with that subject. Because that is a depressing, dark subject. If you, don't go, if, if, if you don't go beyond the grave, if there is no life after death, if there is no hope beyond the grave, that, that is just a dark place that people don't want to go. Well, Stephen was smart enough to go down that road at 14, and it depressed him. In fact, he got so depressed, he, he actually was c- contemplating suicide. And his, his brother was the only one who could kind of help him at times when he was going through this, but no one could help him. His, his parents couldn't help him. Nobody could help him until he came across um, the message of the gospel. And he came to, to, to understand. And, and, and what he was looking for is something that doesn't change. And when he heard that God doesn't change, that God's eternal, then that was where he started down the road of discovery until he found Christ. And, it's a, and, and that changed the complete direction of his life. He started to look at life not as something that is just about the now, but he started looking at life beyond that. And he started looking for God in all of that. And, and uh, Stephen Meyer became an instrumental scientist, one of the top scientists, one of the, the first to really kind of... Um, um, make it popular, get, get out the, the reality of 
what is called intelligent design in the scientific community. He had to approach it from a scientific viewpoint rather than just a, a religious viewpoint which the scientific community would not accept. Uh, and so he, he, he brought in the scientific facts about how everything is, in fact, there's got to be an intelligence not only in creation, but there has to be an intelligence in life. Now, he's written uh, books like Darwin's Doubt and Signature in the Cell, and I'm really looking forward to his new book coming out, I think, at the end of May, is Return of the God Hypothesis. And I can try to get anything I can get from him. I love to, 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 to enjoy. And if you're into the scientific, you know, if, if science kind of excites you or gets you thinking, then you'll want to, you know, kind of look at some of his stuff. But I was thinking how his effect, how he's affected so many people's lives. I, I, he had, um, there was a conference uh, on the origin of the universe and um, the origin of life and the origin of human consciousness. If that's, uh, would you like to be at that conference? I mean, like over your head hit kind of thing. But, um, but there was this conference. And what they did is they had on one side, um, there were four, four um, theists. And on the other side, you know, people who believe in God. Um, uh, I think they were all Christian. I'm not sure if they were all Christian, but... Um, and then on the other side were scientific, scientific materialists or naturalists. And they, they were on this side, and they would then discuss and debate between them. So when they gathered together, uh, before they got started, one of the scientists named Alan Sanders, who was an observational cosmetologist and, uh, from Caltech, he studied under... Um, Edwin Hubble, who was, you know, the, the Hubble space, uh, the telescope is named after. He's the guy that discovered the expanding universe, which came to the, people came to the conclusion that, that uh, the universe had a beginning. You know, some call it the Big Bang or what have you. And um, so that guy, he studied, he, was, he got his PhD under him. And, um, and he was a longtime agnostic. Well, he stands up, and, and what, what had happened is before they got to the debate, one of his friends says, have you ever read any of Stephen Meyer's stuff? Because you're going to be debating him. And he said, no. He says, you probably ought to read some of that stuff. Well, this was in advance. I think they had quite a long time in advance. Well, he did. His, he, did he read it. He re did his research. When he got to the debate, what surprised everyone was he... He, just, he stood up and he says, I'm on the wrong side of the aisle. I'm not supposed to be on this side. He said, I'm supposed to be over there with the theists. He said, because I have not been able, when I look at the fine-tuning of the universe and the, uh, and the evidence that there has got to be a mind, intelligence, in the design, I can no longer be on that side of the aisle. Well, as, uh, as the um, conference went on, um, you know, we, they, they, he, he had, uh, 
Stephen had discovered that not only that he had changed in his understanding of his scientific view, but Alan Sanders actually became a Christian. It led him down the road to become a believer. Well, a little bit later in the conference, they were having a gathering, and uh, Dean Kenyon, Dean Kenyon is a biophysicist from Stanford. He's a professor who was well-known. He was well-known. He was a uh, with NASA, he was a leading researcher in the world. In fact, he wrote the book called Bioethical Predestination, which was the top graduate level text on the origin of life in the United in, in the in, in the universities in the United States. Number one. And in the conference, he stood up and repudiated his own book and said. He, he repudiated his own theory. And the evolutionary theory, he said, cannot explain the origin of the information of DNA and RNA and, and, and even the, the resonant, even in the simplest cell. And he went from being um, an agnostic to a theist. Now, we don't know if he's ever come to Christ yet, Um, But he said, I have to surrender to the fact that there there was an intelligent being that created all of this. Now, Stephen Meyer was effective in doing that because at 14, he had a thirst that he recognized that there was no other place to go. And he went to the only place that could satisfy that thirst in his heart. And it led him down the road of God's purposes in his life. See, there is a thirst. The problem is that we try to fill that thirst with so many other things. I love the famous quote of C.S. Lewis. He said this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by um, having a, a holiday at sea. He said this, we are far too easily pleased. Say that again. We are far too easily pleased. We're like kids. You know, you never have to instruct a rich person not to dig in the trash for their meal. Because they know what they have. They know what they can have. They, they, you can ha- if you can have anything you want, you don't go digging in the trash for your meal. Now, you might have to tell a rich person's child to get out of the trash. Right? Because of their immaturity, their lack of understanding. But you never have to tell a rich person. Why? Because they know. You you see, I, I believe that for the Christian life, as we live out our Christian life and understand what God offers us, the satisfaction, when you discover the satisfaction that comes in Christ, you really don't have to tell people you know, it's okay for people to understand what is sin and what is destructive and all of that that's in their life. The Bible does clearly delineate that. 
But that's not the message that causes transformation. It's not the message of don't do this. It's the message of there is a satisfaction that you won't want to dig in the trash anymore. You, you, you understand those are not the things that are going to satisfy you. But if you discover, if you can only find the satisfaction that you can have in Jesus, then those things will become, they'll, they'll be so distant. They'll see, be, be so, uh, they, they won't be the things that will be drawing you. You won't even, you'll know that they won't satisfy you in your life. There are things that you discover in Jesus that satisfy your soul and thus change the course of your life. The psalmist says in Psalms 42.1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see, his desire is not the things that God can give him. It's not the things that he thinks would satisfy. His desire, the psalmist, is it's God himself. My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? This is a psalmist who had gotten distant from God. And then he recognizes his thirst as a deer pants for the water. You can almost see like a deer who's been running from, you know, there, he's, he's the prey, right? And, uh, and, and some animal, a lion or what, is after him. And he finally gets away and he hides in the bush. And he looks out and there's the water. But he's so thirsty. But he can't leave yet. But he's just panting. For the water book. Oh. Parched lips. And he says, that's where I know my satisfaction is. It's with God. It's with God. You know, there's things that we drink to satisfy our thirst that are actually cause more dehydration. I mean, they, 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 they work in opposite. Um, and, uh, you know, like, um, like sodas, right? You're thirsty, you have a soda. The fact is it doesn't really actually help your thirst. It quenches it temporarily, but you're not, it actually does the opposite. So with coffee and iced tea, and, and I'm not putting them down. I have my coffee every morning. Um, but it's not life-threatening for me, at least as far as I know right now, to have a cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, but... The fact is um, that drinking, having, ha- having certain things physically are dehydrating in our life. And even sometimes we think those are the things that are going to fulfill our thirst. And instead, they actually do the opposite. And like the time I was de- so dehydrated... And all it did was cause me pain. That that's what it does to us spiritually. Some of us emotionally, our souls are just in pain because we've been spending all of our energy and time trying to satisfy. I heard uh, that actually I read this letter um, 
from this man who wrote. He was uh, kind of searching, and he said, he said this, you know, my, my, I, my, I, I've gotten to achieve basically because of my, uh, some fortunate things that have happened my, in my life. And, um, and I have become very wealthy. He owned three or four homes, and he had, you know, he, he had pretty much anything he wanted and more. He was very wealthy. He says, I have a beautiful wife that loves me, and I love her. We have a wonderful marriage. He said, and I have two great kids, and, and I have everything and anything that anyone I could imagine would want. And he said, but I still have this nagging emptiness. He says that it can't satisfy. And I don't know what to do. He says that it bothers me and it, and it takes joy out of my life. And I just don't know what to do with that. And I thought, after hearing that letter, I thought of Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastics. And if you want to read a, a book of someone who's doing everything he can to try to find satis, the, you know, satisfaction or find, find uh, you know, the, the water that would quench his, his thirst, it was Solomon. And Solomon was like this guy, but even more wealthy. He was, one of the, he was the wealthiest man in the world. And he had everything. And at his, he, he had more than this guy had because he had ultimate power as king. He could do anything he wanted, with anyone he wanted, anytime he wanted, whatever he wanted. And he had the resources to do it. And he went down that road because he himself felt like life was not satisfying. So he tried to find and use everything he had to discover satisfaction. And at the end of it all, he says, it's all emptiness. It's all empty. There's nothing there. And then his final conclusion, there's only one thing to do, and that is to obey God. He, comes to, he came to that conclusion. Now, very few people come to the place in their life that they have everything working perfectly so that you can kind of judge all that. Very few people get that, that where we would go, that's kind of the perfect case scenario. But people who get there, either have suppressed their thirst in order to stay there or they discover the emptiness and the thirst that is there. I remember several years back, it's been a while, um, when a, you know, a millionaire really was, you know, was kind of closer to a billionaire now, you know, the, that, and I did some research on it and I did a research on, on suicides. And I discovered that one year, there were 50 millionaires who had committed suicide. People who others would say, if I could just get where they are, then, wow. And you say, well, that wouldn't be me. I, I, if I got there, I'd, I'd be happy. Not if you didn't satisfy your soul. And there's only one who can do that. There's only one who can actually make sense of this world. And, and he, he's the only one that can cause your soul to be satisfied. There's um, a story in, in John chapter 4 where Jesus is 
if you remember, he was on his way uh, up north, and, and I mean, uh, I'm actually it was down south, and he was, he came to Samaria, and he went through Samaria. I'm not going to do the whole story, and some of you know it well. I could have taught on it before, but he comes to this woman who's drawing water, and uh, and uh, Jesus said, "Give me something, give, give me drink." And she had been there; she had the bucket, and the woman said uh, to him, "How is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me, a Samaritan woman?" Which being a rabbi, any rabbi that would talk to a woman in public like that would lose any kind of credibility in that day. Jesus didn't care. He's going to talk to the woman. And, and uh, it says, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And that would he made it a double whammy on it. But Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And he says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. I'm the one with the bucket. And the well's pretty deep. Where then do you get this living water? And she goes down this road, you know, you're greater than Jacob and so forth. And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. No matter what it is, your water if it's not Jesus' water, you will thirst again. You might find temporary satisfaction in the next thing. I mean, think about the things we try to find full satisfaction. We think that we'll get there. Man, some, some, some people are satisfied if they get the new gadget, right? Just the new gadget alone. I can get the new gadget. You'll thirst again. Because the next one comes out, it's even better. Material fulfillment, Really? Social change agents. Sometimes people will sacrifice their life to make social change, which is a good thing. Some of these things actually are good things. They want to do something good in, in you know, in our in, in our nation, our you know, in our communities and so forth. Yeah, go for it. Good things. But you think you're going to be satisfied a lifetime doing that? Uh uh Relationships. Even healthy ones. Wonderful. You know, one of the great deceptions is somehow if I have a wonderful family, I have, you know, a, a wonderful spouse and kids that just obey every word I say. They make their bed. They, you know, they brush their teeth. They, they do good in school. Whatever it is. Then. No. No. It can't. It's not enough. Even, the, even when it goes as you want. Some, it's, it's, it's sex, it's physical things, it's material things, it's self-medication. How we try to hide the emptiness, the thirstiness of our soul. And Jesus said, you'll thirst again, but whoever drinks the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but water that I shall give him will be, become to in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Psalm 63, one says, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Let me tell you how this relates to Christians 
as well as non-believers, non-Christians. See, as Christians, we understand that the water that comes to us has come to us in Christ at salvation. Therefore, with joy will you draw water from the wells of salvation. You see, we've got a well that God gave us. When you accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit came inside of you. And there's a well for you. But Jesus said to them that if you come to me, he says, out of your belly or out of your, soul, your heart will flow rivers of living water. See, what Jesus is offering is not just water for our own personal satisfaction, but an overflow that touches other people too, that blesses them as well. And I would also say to you that what Jesus, when Jesus said that if you want this water, Look at what it says in verse 38 of chapter 7. He believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So there's going to be these rivers of living water. And the Bible says, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet come because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he's telling them of what's coming and if they'll believe upon him, out of their belly will flow rivers of living water. And where do you get it? From Jesus. You don't get it you, the only place you get the rivers of living water, the only place you get this water is from Jesus. You don't get it. You don't get it any other way. You don't get it from any other source. You don't even get it from religious sources. The, the, in fact, a group of the people that are rejecting what Jesus is saying are as religious as they come. You, you can come to church... You can sing the songs and never get the water that Jesus offers. Never get it. Because the only way you get it is you come to Jesus. That's the only way. So you could come to church and you can sing the songs, but you never come to Jesus. And I'm not talking about just salvation. That's the starting point. But I'm talking about in your relationship, in your ongoing flow of the water of God flowing in your life, it's because you come to Jesus. I've sat in church once that I didn't, you know, I just was singing the songs one time. Well, maybe more than that. I've been to church a lot. And I know what it's like also to have my mind wander and we, we get through an entire worship service and I've really never engaged with Jesus. I've done that. I've sat through sermons in which I've never really engaged with Jesus. Heard the message, never engaged with Jesus while God would want to have spoken to my heart and touched me and filled me and satisfied me. And so, the only way is we get it from Jesus. And you don't even have to be in church to do that. 
You could actually do that tomorrow morning. You, you could actually do that. You see, Jesus offers. It's him only. This story, by the way, of this water being poured out on, on this celebration, this water, this, the water represented the water that came out when the children of Israel were in the desert. Remember, they started to murmur because there wasn't any water. They, they were getting thirsty and there wasn't any water. And God sent Moses down and he had a stick and he told him to strike the rock and water would come out. And there was this rock that he struck, and the water came out. And wherever they went, there was that rock. And the, water, the rock provided the water. And, and uh, the rock, actually it says in 1 Corinthians 10.3, he said, as they were in the talking about them being in the desert he says they ate the same spiritual food and all drink from the spiritual drink for they drink of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ that rock was Christ that that represented Jesus he's the rock and out of Jesus flows the water the water the satisfaction, it comes from him. So, how do we live? How does this practically work out in our life? If you do not draw satisfaction, if you do not draw the satisfaction, if you don't draw the water from Jesus, you'll be thirsty enough to try to find it somewhere else. You will. And you'll put your energies, and people do this all the time. They put their, their life. I'm even talking about Christians who have at once been touched and satisfied by the Lord, but they get away, they, they, they start to pursue other things. They, they think this other thing is going to give them more and give them something, and they start going down this road, and pretty soon, you know, they're, they're climbing the ladder of success. And if they do get to the top, they realize that the ladder's been leaning on the wrong wall. That it should have been over here. The ladder should be pursuing Jesus. And so instead of pursuing Christ and finding satisfaction in him, we'll find it in other ways. And if this doesn't work, we'll try this other thing and try this next thing and hope for this other thing's going to do it. And live a life of emptiness. Or we will find our satisfaction in Jesus and then as Jesus gives us things that's just icing on the cake. You see, he's the satisfaction. Those other things aren't the sustainers. They're just extra that we enjoy in him. The Bible says he gives us all things to enjoy. So he, he gives us things to help us. But the point is that you find it only and only and only in him. 
no other place. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for you. Early in the morning will I rise up and seek you. Because he just couldn't wait to find and to pull more of God's water. The Bible ends with this directive. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, anybody thirsty? Come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. You know why? You can't earn it. It's a free, it's free. It's free. The thing that satisfies your soul is free, and it's coming to Jesus and letting him satisfy your soul. This is something I learned a long time ago in my life. I learned a long time ago, just like I learned when I got sick, that I better drink water. Else I'm going to get dehydrated and it's going to be real painful. I learned to do that. Years ago, I learned if I'm going to satisfy my soul, if I don't satisfy my soul, it's going to be very painful. I satisfy my soul by going to Jesus. That's the only place. And I'm going to ask you if you would just, as the worship team comes, I'm going to ask you just to kind of take a moment. If you feel comfortable doing this, I'm going to invite you just to lift your hand a little, hands a little bit, maybe like this or like this, however you want to do it, like this. In an openness before the Lord. Because I wouldn't want you to leave this building without coming to Jesus. Because it's really about Him. Lord, we come to you. You're the, you're the one who satisfies our soul. You're the lover of our soul. I come to you, Jesus. I want to be in your presence. I want to draw from your love. I want to draw from your kindness. I want to draw from your wonderful power and authority. I want the freshness of your spirit touching my life. I, I, I want to, to put away everything that, Lord, I try to fill this gap up with that isn't you. Lord, I, I want to be free from the bondages of things that I attach myself to so that I can fully attach myself to you. Lord, you are everything. You're the center of our life, Lord. And we want you to always be there.
satisfies like you do the fountain that won't run dry nothing satisfies like you do I want all that you offer your living water drink from the endless well and I will sit at your table forever grateful forever where you dwell and all that I ever wanted my heart has found it tasted life nothing satisfies like you do the fountain won't run dry no nothing satisfies like you do I've tasted oh, 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 oh. I have tasted
do that for a moment. God, we worship you. Lord, we bless the name of Jesus. Lord, the only one who satisfies, we ask you to fill us, God, to overflowing with your rivers of living water. Thank you that you're faithful. Thank you, Jesus, that you've met every need. We're so grateful to you. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church, as you go. We'll see you Wednesday night, okay? Take care. I have tasted life, nothing satisfies like you do.
nothing satisfies like you do. Satisfies like you do. The fountain won't run dry. Nothing satisfies. 